Blog Talk Radio. Good evening and blessings and welcome to another installment of the Gist of Freedom Estate. This show is produced by acclaimed historian, educator, and author Leslie Gist and serves as our weekly live online discussion to celebrate the African-American experience by honoring all the people past and present, black and white, who with faith and focus are preserving our rich history through literature, the arts, the skilled trades, and the humanities. We thank you for joining us tonight, and we'd love you to be a part of tonight's discussion by calling in with your comments or questions to 347-324-5555. Welcome to a special, we have, tonight we have a special edition of the Gist of Freedom is Still Faith Blog Talk Radio Show. Tonight we will be having guest author and host, uh, William Katz, who will be interviewing Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz. Mr. Katz is the author of Black Indians and over 40 other um, books. You can find out more about his works on williamkatz.com. We are waiting for Mr. Katzen to uh, come online, and we hope you enjoy the show. Thank you. Hello? Mr. Katz, is this you? Yes, it is me. Okay, wonderful. Is your guest online? Ready to get online, yes. Is Roxanne on? Is Roxanne on the line? Uh, she will be on the line in a moment. Are you ready okay, for her? So, yes, we're ready. We're going to introduce you again, okay? Are you ready? Yes, introduce me and then. Okay, all right, let's go. Hold on. Okay, you keep what you did. Hi, you listen to the Mr. Freedom is Radio Show. Um, tonight we have a special guest and our host, Mr. Williams Katz, who will be interviewing author Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz. Mr. Katz is the author of Black Indians and also over 40 other books. You can find more about Mr. Katz's works on williamkatz.com. We hope you enjoy the show. Are you there, Mr. Katz? Yes, I am. And uh, my, my my website is WilliamLCats.com. Um, this is a rather special day. It's actually it's International Women's Day, and we have rather an extraordinary woman uh, that we're going to be interviewing for today, Dr. Roxanne Dunbar Ortiz, and in a, in a really extraordinary book, an Indigenous People's History of the United States, which is really getting quite a play and has brought uh, Dr. Dunbar-Ortiz to New York to do some speaking engagements as well as media appearances. And actually, uh, you can tell us about the one. You have one later this afternoon that you can tell us about. So let's let's get started because I, I find this book so – I've been waiting for this book to come out. Let me put it that way. And it's a history of the United States but looked at from the viewpoint of Native Americans. 
And let me start first, Roxanne, with asking you about your background. What is it in your personal or educational or professional background that drew you to this particular dramatic story? Well, thank you, Bill, uh, for having me on the show. I, I grew up in um, in central West Central Oklahoma, rural Oklahoma, and um, my dad was a um, sharecropper and sometimes a tenant farmer, and um, my mother was part Indian. My dad was Scots-Irish of a settler background, and that family had been from, from Missouri and before that from um uh, Tennessee and Virginia, you know, that trek um, of the frontier. And um, so that was, uh, you know, the dominant story of my childhood because my mother wasn't very accepted by his family, even though um, they were very poor. I always see my mother was so poor, she was an orphan, that she uh, thought she was marrying up when she married a share- white sharecropper. So <laughs> there were... Uh, there were Indian towns all around, and uh, in the eastern part of the state in Oklahoma, there are also all black towns and all white towns, a complete apartheid. Uh, everyone was Baptist, but there were Indian Baptists, black Baptists, and white Baptists. And so we were in a, a white town. It was actually the town my father grew up in, uh, he, and he was uh, born the year they moved there in 1907. So... I um, several things happened uh, that I consider very lucky that that I was able to. Uh, first of all, my oldest brother went off, you know, to the army, and then he he went to college, which uh, no one had done in our family, and that was kind of a something he then uh, made sure to instill in us that we, the three younger ones of us, that we should find a way to go to college. So I, I had that aspiration because of my oldest brother, who was 11 years older, and I didn't really even know what you know what that entailed in this little country school. But I, uh, you know, it, uh, I moved to Oklahoma City to go to trade school my last year of high school, and that was the first year of integration in Oklahoma. And that school I went to, that trade school, was the first integrated uh, high school in Oklahoma. Uh, Central High School in Oklahoma City. And that was one of the most important things that happened to me is uh, seeing the sit-ins at the um, big drugstore downtown, seeing uh, people protesting, um, the students that they brought sort of stole the athletes from the all-black school uh, were constantly being attacked by white students in the hall. And you were in this position, or I felt in this position, I had to choose which side I was on, and it was just assumed, you know, that you'd be on the white side. There were three or four other Indian students, and um, so I just I just made my choice. I just, all I knew is, you know, the sense of justice, of just, just sort of blank justice. It was unjust what they were doing, and um, so that um, sort of, drew me then to people uh, who were thought differently in Oklahoma, and I kept meeting them. Uh, so it was it's this sort of a subterranean uh, uh, existence that I know must that I knew if it existed there, it existed everywhere. People who think differently, 
who actually um, uh, were communists, Marxists, uh, were, um, uh, and so they, you know, I started learning things, and then I went to University of Oklahoma, and I had I uh, I had the good luck of meeting a a Marxist philosophy student who was blind and. I I worked for him reading, so his dissertation was on Hegel and Marx. So I got to read Marx when I was 18 years old, reading to the blind student and him teaching me. And um, I also, the other thing that was inspiring to me uh, to become a radical is um, that my grandfather had been in the Oklahoma Socialist Party and the Industrial Workers of the World. And he named my father Moyer Haywood Scarberry Pettibone Dunbar, and those are the founders of the industrial workers of the world. So this was a great hero to me, um, and I always wanted to find out more about that. So, um, so then I moved to California. I really didn't identify as uh, native because my mother was very ashamed of it, and. Um, uh, there was just no positive identification. Uh, Native people were very suppressed in Oklahoma until you know the uprisings of the 60s began, and then they began rebelling not to cut their hair in the boarding schools and things like that. But that was all after I had moved to California. So it was in you know really in graduate school when I went to UCLA that um, I became interested in this is my subject of studying. First, I was, you know, interested in the Mao as an undergraduate. I kept doing papers on things like the Maoris, you know, in New Zealand and and different indigenous peoples. And um, so I then, when the Native movement, um, well, I got involved in the anti-war movement, the women's movement, of course. And then when Alcatraz happened, it really got my attention. And there were a lot of people going around, you know. From that was the, just... That was the occupation of Alcatraz by the American Indian Movement. Yes, and other groups of uh, people, too, and really led by women. And it lasted 18 months, uh, uh, 1969 and 70. And I wasn't living in the San Francisco Bay Area when it happened, but I visited there. And, of course, it was headlines in all the papers. And there were people um, involved in Native movements who... Um, went around really trying to recruit people who were Native but not identifying as Native to be a part of the movement. And so I got, um, uh, I definitely got marked and and, uh, and decided to get involved and uh, join the American Indian Movement and got very involved in, um, you know, I was finishing my dissertation also in law school and I was writing on the history of land tenure in New Mexico, an indigenous subject. So I got very involved in the trials, um, you know, the treaty trials and all, right after the Wounded Knee occupation of 1973. So that's kind of the short history of how I um, I came to be involved and, and how I didn't come to be involved until, you know, I, I was in my late 20s. Now, why then... From what you've written about, would you say that the story of the United States should not begin with Christopher Columbus, where it usually does in our textbook, but with indigenous people? Well, you know, uh, it's really important to know what 
existed here in the Western Hemisphere and for us here in North America, especially in North America, that um, all of the land, all the territory we um, consider, you know, that is in the boundaries of um, of what is called the United States now, were occupied, were populated with, um, it was really a, one historian calls it a, a, a um, continent of villages. Um, and what we're led to believe by even today, you know, the image, either the romantic savage or the um, or the bestial savage, depending, you know, the good or bad India, but nevertheless a a sort of wandering, you know, sparsely populated. And so the first chapter of my book I devote to, I said, follow the corn, you know, the origins of people in the Western Hemisphere and the civilizations, the agricultural civilizations they built up. And most people know about Central Mexico, Central America, Mesoamerica, and the Andes, but they don't realize that um, the entire um, southwest, what's now the southwest of the U.S. and the entire east of um, the Mississippi was, you know, and and up up into what is now Canada, uh, was one of the seven um, agricultural civilizations that uh, started the whole agricultural revolution. And and in other places... um, in the continent, uh, those people who 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 were migrants uh, were followers of herdsmen, really of uh, the buffalo. They they actually had a game management, uh, so the buffalo came close to them. They didn't have to go find them, but they did follow uh, the buffalo. They had you know three different residences in a year. But they still were also farmed, you know, in um, uh, in the harvest season. So, in the wars against the Indians, they, this it could not have been as successful, and um, in terms of uh, devastation, had it not been that they were farmers, because uh, there's the the kind of warfare that was carried out against them was a was a um, dirty war, counterinsurgency war, uh, burning their food crops, starving them out, and of course on the plains, killing all the uh, the buffalo, uh, the main resource of the native people there, and um, uh, and and just also just burning their villages and making them in, into refugees. So um, you have to start with that story. Uh, of the real story of the native people and the onslaught of colonialism to know, uh, and it was British colonialism, uh, to really understand the roots of um, what became the United States. And, and you said in your book, you've, you've hit on a, a, a combination of words. You said the United States was founded on settler colonialism. Explain what that means. Well, settler colonialism is a is a particular kind of colonialism. The colonialism of, that started with, you know, symbolically with Christopher Columbus in 1492, this um, uh, transatlantic um, slave trade and the transatlantic conquests of the Americas um, 
that simultaneously colonialism in Africa and in, in the Americas. Um, this was, um, in the case of the Spanish, at least in their first 200 years in the Americas, they mainly were a, um, a bureaucratic uh, colonialism where they had colonial masters and, uh, and bureaucrats and, of course, uh, uh, church people, priests, and they controlled um, huge numbers of Native people in slavery the first century. Uh, they enslaved the Indians, and they de- deported many of them to the mines in Peru, for instance, from western Nicaragua and Honduras and the Mississippi Valley, the Natchez people. Uh, but they didn't bring a great many settlers. Later on, when they settled Argentina, um, you know, the cone of South America, Argentina, Chile, Uruguay, Paraguay, they um, they recruited settlers, many of them German settlers, because not that many Spanish wanted to, to go. And then the republics, once they got established, they also recruited settlers to outnumber the Indians. So they became settler colonialists. Argentina is a settler colonialist country. Um, New Zealand, um, uh, Australia, Canada, and the United States are the four British settler colonies. But most of the British colonies were also um, administrative, like in Africa, and uh, there were good good many settlers, but always a very small minority. They didn't recruit. They weren't trying to outnumber um, the indigenous population as they wanted to use them as labor, and the same with South Asia. And then they worked there through the Raj that they uh, developed the, uh, as middlemen um, in in administering the colonies. So settler colonialism is is peculiar in that in that it has no use for the um, for the labor of the people there. They want to replace, eliminate the native, and replace them with European settlers, um, mainly for agricultural um, colonies. And of course, the plantation slave work plantation economy in what became the United States became the motor of capitalism itself. So uh, this land was forcibly taken. It took um, until 1830 to ethnically, 1830, 1840 during the Jackson administration, to ethnically cleanse east of the Mississippi all of the peoples um, who were then put in Indian territory. So that's um, it's eliminationism by um, almost by definition genocidal. Colonialism in general is uh, devastating and can be genocidal just by, say, overwork in the mines, which happened in in Mexico, and depleting the population. So then they substitute African slaves uh, to come in and um, and. Uh, they, but they still remained an important workforce, and so this just so that they had to then portray these people as not really being attached to the land, and um, of course they didn't consider the land private property, but they certainly were deeply attached to um, uh, to the land. Well, I I think also people don't usually know that the first people enslaved here were Native Americans. Yeah. That Columbus started in your book goes in into this thing and it's a it's a revelation I think to a lot of people. The the other let's go to then to one of your main concepts. 
you seem to be challenging the concept that we've all grown up with. Maybe we didn't know the term, but it's called American exceptionalism. Am I right in saying that's the idea that America, unlike other countries, had a kind of lovely past? We did things right. We were appropriate with people. Yes, we made a few mistakes, but that we went on and on as the beacon of liberty. Yeah, you know, the the real hardcore right-wingers will want to stick to, you know, that the, there was nothing ever negative or bad that was done. But in general, because of civil rights and um, the movements of the 1960s in, in particular, of course there were always workers' movements, but um, this, these largely neglected uh, the African-American um, and Mexican and, and Indian Native American populations. So these uprisings um, and assertions and development of ethnic studies and all this, they had to um, develop this multi multiculturalism. But even in doing that, and especially develop a concept of the nation of immigrants, and that's become the, the, the sort of um, uh, admitting there were mistakes, but there was something so deeply um, positive in the core of the founding of the United States that it could be, uh, extended, extended to all groups of people. So, um, so the Civil War freed African Americans, you know, top down, a gift to African Americans. And then, yes, it was set back by Jim Crow. That didn't used to be a part of the narrative at all, but it has to be now because African Americans have made it known they were still living in that condition in um, in the 1950s and 60s. So they, the, it has adjusted, but it's mainly then a, a, a black and white story where the African Americans are free, and they too can be a part of integrated into this uh, almost perfect system. That it's, it's not that it's perfect. The multiculturalist uh, narrative goes that developed in the '70s, but that it is perfect. Uh, it is perfectible. You know that that we have to keep working at it. And so it's this progressive activity. But this narrative has to leave out the Native Americans entirely because for any justice to be done in relation to Native Americans, it means a restoration of a great deal of land, and it means a completely different concept of the founding of the United States uh, by, uh, I know, you know, we say the founding fathers were mostly slave owners, they were also mostly surveyors, you know, land speculators. George Washington was the biggest land speculator um, of them all. And uh, these were native lands that they uh, would go with their crews out and survey and actually um, uh, take, the, you know, take the property for expansion, also sell it. Um, and I believe this is the main reason for the independence uh, movement is uh, it states it in the Declaration of Independence as as one of the main reasons, and that is the um, uh, the British Empire having decided uh, to draw the the uh, the Proclamation of 1754 that drew a line of uh, the 13 colonies around them that that would be the limit of British colonialism in North America, 
after the French and Indian War. And the settlers had to, in their treaty with the French, the settlers of both countries had to be pulled back into the into their those boundaries. So these um, these big planters and land speculators who had been um, already mapping and and squatting, uh, like the Daniel Boone, uh, famous Daniel Boone crew in Kentucky. Um, they did not want to give up, you know, that expansion. And, of course, plantation agriculture requires, it eats up land, it destroys it because of raising cash crops um, and not even food crops, uh, but cotton and flax and and, um, and tobacco. Uh, these are very depleting products and and nothing else for the nutrients. So Virginia, by the time of the Revolution, Virginia was a wasteland. So they actually started just being breeding slaves to sell in um, in the uh, in the states that were acquired, or the territory that was required in the Louisiana Purchase, the Mississippi Valley. Let me ask you this question because some historians are drifting around to the idea that what really wiped out and Native Americans and what won the country for white people were the diseases that the Europeans brought over. How do you respond? Well, it's always been a um, you know a, an assumption and a um, a part of that story is that there were it was very uh, lightly populated. That that is. You know, been quite. Once that was proven to be wrong by demographers like Sherburn and Cook and and others, uh, Denovan in the 60s and 70s, um, that why were people raising these tons and tons of food? You know, just to for fun. You know, if they were not feeding all a bunch of people, millions, hundreds of millions. And so, when I was in graduate school in the mid 60s. The estimated population of the whole hemisphere was 10 million, and now it's 100 million, and it keeps going up. And for North America alone, what is now the United States, it was 10 million. So, um, so now the disease, once that was established and couldn't be denied, um, uh, the disease uh, theory really took off. As uh, it's a way of Lessening guilt because even though you know these European diseases came, it's a kind of passive thing. They, you know, it's not an intentional. And then all these people just died off, and and there was this empty land. Nobody to blame. No, nobody to blame, and there was no. Why not take the land and do something with it? <laughs> so it's convenient. A, it's a perfect theory, but in fact, you know, it's been shown that. Although disease was uh, was certainly an element, it was in Europe too. In the Middle Ages, half the population of Europe died of a, of the plague, um, of pandemic diseases, and uh, populations can recover themselves from disease. But once they're in refugee situ- situations and uh, and starvation situations, uh, they die when disease enters. They had disease in Indian villages before the Europeans came. But they had methods of uh, of dealing with disease that so that it didn't become pandemic. And um, 
so it's a it's a very you know it, if you separate the war and the creation of refugees, refugee camps are always just magnets for uh, you know for for disease to spread or prisons or any any place like that where people are in a dependency in a false uh, you know not really in social relations where they can um, create conditions of their own. Um, they're just sitting ducks for. Uh, the Navajos who were relocated to Fort Defiance, uh, a, a prison camp in um, in a forced march from their territory to southeastern um, New Mexico, they did not die of disease at all. Half of that population died in those camps. They died of starvation because they were not bringing enough food to feed them. They died of starvation, not disease. And you, you also add that if the disease had done it, it wouldn't have taken 300 years of warfare. Am I right about exactly. that? Exactly. This is what uh, my question always is: that well, why why not just wait? And let okay, the die-off happens. We go in now. Why did they have to have um, you know what has become the most uh, powerful army in human history, uh, building it up and uh, counterinsurgency? Warfare uh, to go in and and uh, destroy people if if disease was going to come along and do it or already had, so it's it's definitely a contradiction. And so you had this whole field of of military history where the Indian Wars are dealt with in great detail, but these don't get in the textbooks. And if you go through that history, it was unrelenting from day one. Of course, it had been going on in colonial times with the settlers, but from day one, uh, or during uh, the Independence War even, uh, the devastation, George Washington's orders, you know, for burning the, the um, villages of the of the Six Nations and making sure they're destroyed, because if they did win, they didn't want to have to deal with these people, and um, uh, it's best to destroy them now. So it was it was inherent, you know, inherent in that in that independence movement. And they didn't miss a beat moving into that territory that had been forbidden, the Ohio the Ohio, Ohio country, which at the time was called the Northwest Territories because that was the northwest of the colonies. And um, the Northwest Ordinance uh, laid out the maps they already had done for um, dividing up that land and selling it to settlers. So yeah, the warfare alone, I think, um, absolutely um, throws into question the disease factor. You're listening to Dr. Roxanne Dunbar Ortiz. Her book is An Indigenous People's History of the United States, and it is filled with references not only to George Washington, but a host of experts uh, who write today and have swallowed some of the same things that the George Washingtons and Patrick Henrys and Ben Franklins was spinning out at that time. Matter of fact, let me get into the wor- uh, world of spin, which you deal with in your book. The Europeans not only came over here with their guns, with their missionaries, with their diseases, but they came over with their wonderful spins. I think you alluded to one of them before when you said, well, the land is lying fallow. Uh, nobody's really using it. Uh, this was one of the, this then justifies the Europeans taking over the native land. Yeah, and they came with a you know a, a legal what they thought was a legal tool of um, 
that's called the Doctrine of Discovery. It was the um, it was of course you know Britain was a um, had broken with the Catholic Church, but no matter when when colonialism started uh, with the Portuguese uh, requesting of the Pope, the only law that existed in Europe at the time in the uh, 15th century was the papal uh, was the papal law, uh, the Holy um, the Holy Roman uh, uh, Empire that took over from the Roman Empire. So the Roman Empire had a very centralized um, authority, and the Holy Roman Empire simply uh, took over that in the name of Christianity. And so uh, the Pope gave permission to the Portuguese to uh, to colonize, invade West Africa for the purpose of, of taking, uh, taking people, as, uh, enslaving people and selling them uh, in the um, uh, in, well, in, in Europe, you know, the slave slave trade in Europe. So this is really the beginning of the transatlantic slave trade. When Columbus uh, made his voyage, um, the papal law was updated to include the Spanish, and divided the world, uh, the whole globe, between the Spanish and the Portuguese. So that's why you had the Philippines or Spanish. And Indonesia was uh, Portuguese, or you know, Portuguese and Dutch, and uh, you know they're not that far from each other. But Brazil and the rest of of, um, of Latin America is Spanish, and Brazil Portuguese. So that was that, you know, just that line around the world. And then, of course, the British came into the act and um, uh, went to war against the and the Br- British and the French and and the Dutch uh, joined in. But they took along with them this papal law of doctrine of discovery, which uh, said that um, any land uh, uh, found, just found, um, set upon by a Christian kingdom, they were all kingdoms then, that it um, it belonged to them and to the state, uh, to the monarchy. And so it was. Uh, uh, that's called the doctrine of discovery. You discovery the land, plant a flag, and that's um, that's your land, and you can do what you wish with the people on it. And that that uh, what what is really disturbing. I think what disturbs most when people learn this because they don't know it, except for native people, is that in the United States that law is still in effect. There were Supreme Court decisions that that codified and then made it part of constitution once a supreme court decision codified the doctrine of discovery explicitly in the Marshall court in the 1820s in the Cherokee cases that they could allow the Cherokees to live on that land uh but it wasn't theirs they could be moved at any time it belonged to the US government and um, they could do with it what they wish, but out of their, their kindness, they would let them use it. And, of course, the Georgia settlers uh, didn't go for that, and Andrew Jackson, um, they, uh, uh, they, you know, they wanted the Cherokees removed. So the Supreme Court decision could be seen as on the side of the Cherokees. Well, yes, they can stay there, but they don't own it. But, in fact, it, um, uh, all the reservations, all of the 
native territories that they've been able to retain by by uh, defending themselves, by resisting, and by uh, treaties, these uh, still come under the doctrine of discovery. So it's a very precarious existence even today that Native people have. What the doctrine of discovery sounds like to me, and I suspect many other listeners, is the the, the first wiggle of uh, white privilege. Mm-hmm. In other words, we're white, so we can even have your lands. Right. White and Christian. That's that's how all of the all of colonialism uh, around the world is in the you know from the sixteenth um, to the twentieth century. I mean, there were colonies being established even in in the twentieth century, and like Ethiopia became an Italian colony it had never been colonized before uh, under the doctrine of discovery. Amazing, mm-hmm. Roxanne. Let's take your 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 book doesn't just stop with this past history, but you constantly bring in the connections uh, like fighting in Indian country. We're talking about Iraq, Iran, Vietnam. Talk about that aspect. Yeah, that term Indian country is really a, um, it's a code word in in military language uh, and has been ever since the, the 1890s of um, Indian country means enemy territory, and that's the translation. And it can be shortened to in country, and of course, engine country uh, is what they usually say. Soldiers say we're an engine country now, and this is um, this is just a you know a um, a, a one aspects that makes you know that within the military culture and tradition that's developed in the United States, uh, the Indian Wars are are the fundamental basis of it. And uh, we're never taught that in, you know, civilian courses, uh, history courses, but if, if you go to the military schools, military academies, the books, the military textbooks they read, they count all those Indian uh, wars as congressional medals of honor were given. Even at Wounded Knee, which was a massacre, is called a successful battle. There were 58 congressional medals of honor given. Um, and the three Seminole Wars, of course, um, were um, really the basis for modern warfare uh, in, in terms of modern counterinsurgency warfare that's used being used all over the Middle East, was used in Southeast Asia, um, and before that in, in Central America and the Caribbean, the Philippines. Um, so they really, you know, after so-called closing of the frontier, the defeat of the Plains people in 1890, the Wounded Knee Massacre being the sort of symbolic um, uh, moment, they jumped right over the Pacific and the Caribbean to, you know, to the former Spanish, the Spanish colonies to um, co-opt the the liberation movements going on there and to take them over and crush them and drive the Spanish out and hold those territories as colonies. Even today, Puerto Rico is still, of course, a, a U.S. colony. So what you're saying is that this history that happened hundreds of years ago it still lives with us. It still guides, yes. particularly a lot of our leaders. 
It does. It's the you know it is the definition of U.S. nationalism. It's a it's a rhetoric that people, um, even you know, progressives or radical people will. Um, uh, it, it's so automatic that it's not conscious that this is this is a you know is a great positive event of of you know the the uh, taking of the continent and. Um, Obama, President Obama speaking at the Selma anniversary, the 60th anniversary of uh, uh, of the Selma march uh, um, yesterday. He he actually referred to the Lewis and Clark expedition as one of the great brilliant. He has been particularly. Um, uh, I think it's because he's gone back and read John F. Kennedy and Lincoln, you know, the two predecessors he most admires. And their language was very uh, nationalistic, you know, this nationalistic in terms of the the conquering of the of the continent and with the pioneers, you know, and the covered wagons being the the main symbols of um, of sacrifice and success. And um, his inaugural speech uh, emphasized that and. Uh, uh, he even included uh, the whip of the lash for the slaves of their sacrifice to become um, uh, true Americans, and it's it's really so alive. Uh, this whole book, I one of the points I wanted to make. I am a historian, but um, that this, in particular, in U.S. history, everything in its past is very has a very short history for one thing as a country very um you know just just a little over over 200 years of existence most countries are older than that um and um it it has uh completely all the structures it had at, at its founding um that there've been amendments you know, with slavery outlawed, people being free, women getting the vote. So you've seen these things, you know, this increase in settler democracy, you might say, but it it it's done in a, you know, to bring people into the settler state nationalism that you too can be a part of this, so the immigrants can be a part of it and be proud of this as a background. And most people don't know what that, that what they're buying into then is genocide. You know that it's as if the Nazis' nationalism were still with us, and that they, it would be a great feat that they had uh, been able to incorporate all the German people, as if they had won. You know, and and incorporated the German people and gotten rid of those those internationalist Jews and communists who could not be trusted to be good Germans. And no one would even consider that to be appropriate. Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz, and her book is An Indigenous People's History of the United States, and we could go on for hours. <laughs> but, uh, by the way, are you willing to take any questions? Are there sure. any people calling in, Leslie? Any people with questions? Well, let me No you, one's uh, on the line right now. Excuse Can me? Can you hear me? Yes. Um, you have no callers on the line at this time. Okay. All right. Well, let me ask right. this, this question. Why does 
this history become important for young people, for those in schools? Has it been left out? It's been left out, and it can't just be added in because it changes everything that's already uh, in that textbook. And that's why it's they have to leave the Native Americans out or just tack on this, uh, you know, a little bit about uh, where they were before the United States came, these days before um, the Europeans came, and even, you know, even admitting genocide to a great extent, uh, although mostly by died by tragedy, you know, this tragic death of, uh, of all these people. And uh, the story is now that, that the Native people were so weakened by disease they couldn't resist successfully. Um, and then uh, they might be mentioned, you know, that they're removed to Indian Territory these days. And then the Plains Wars, of course, that's the whole cowboy and Indian thing, the whole mythical tradition built around that. And then they're they're generally dropped from the U.S. story completely, unless there's an in chapter, contemporary chapter in which it will be mentioned that uh, the American Indian movement and Alcatraz and and um, uh, but never, um, you know, unless it's a specialized course in Native American history. Uh, even in Western history, the subfield of Western history, uh, it is amazing how um, how triumphalist it remains. And even um, one of the newer books in 2009, I think, is is actually blames the Comanches for the um, uh, for the depletion, you know, the, the attacks on the Pueblo Indians, rather than the Spanish and the and the U.S. when they came in. I remember when I was in in grade school and living here on 13th Street, Manhattan. I think some of the kids used the phrase "Indian giver," mm-hmm. as if when the Indians came to take back their land, they were taking back something they had given voluntarily. It just yeah. shows how this is ingrained in our culture. Yeah, the the Indian giver is really interesting because um, it's still used. You know, it still pops up as a as a phrase meaning you know someone is uh, taking something back that they gave you. But when these settlers came, they would um, often come and you know they would come and and negotiate uh, for some land you know to farm or or whatever, and um, sometimes forcibly, such that there was really no... But for the Native people, it was never... There was no concept of owning the land, selling it, that it would... If these people were there temporarily, and the land could be recovered. So, yeah, they would uh, fight to get it back once they saw they were expanding it or doing something outside the... So the Indian givers... and. Another one that uh, you still hear sometimes is uh, an Indian behind every bush, um, you know, to attack. That uh, if you're being paranoid, skulking around, yeah, I remember. and skulking, skulking around, right? What else would you like to add, Roxanne, to this? Well, um, I'm hoping. You know, I I know that this um, uh, this kind of book. Um, I think it will be used, you know, and already is being used in a lot of college courses. 
Um, but I think uh, teachers out there also know that they can um, inform themselves and in their own teaching, you know, include materials that probably would not be in their textbook. And um, so I'm hoping that this becomes a, a part of the thinking so that there then are challenges to the uh, that are far more radical than the ones now uh, to the um, presentation of U.S. history. And I find I've talked to thousands of people since this book came out last September in 2014. Um, I've gotten invited to a lot of places, and I, I uh, mostly young people that I've talked with, and. Um, Rather than being finding this negative, and most of them, you know, descendants of settlers or immigrants, um, they find it kind of liberating because I think people in the United States, especially young people, know that they're they're not that they don't know the truth and they don't know how to get to it. You know, it's not obvious how to how to get to it so they're attracted to something like Ron Paul, you know, or the Federal Reserve is to blame for everything, or Jews are to blame for everything, the white supremacists, uh they're they and these are not bad people that get attracted to those kinds of things. They're looking for something that explains, you know, some grand narrative that explains why this country is as it is. And um so I think um, this book does that, and that um, it's actually very liberating for people to read it, I think. Yeah, I was going to ask you how white audiences have responded to your talk. I'm surprised. I thought I wrote a very controversial book. Um, <laughs> and and I find that it's so enthusiastically received that um, it's not like it's being reviewed in, in, you know, the New York Times or anything, but uh, it just just with you know in interviews and and responses uh and in my person to person talks with people um lots and lots of campuses and more coming up and I just find this this not not just acceptance but enthusiasm you know as if I know how it feels when I learn something new and insight that that really has a profound effect on me, you feel exhilarated. Even if it's not totally positive in the sense that you can go, no, I'm really proud of my background. <laughs> my family were settlers and they killed Indians. <laughs> but that, that you know the truth. You know, the truth is just um, a very liberating thing. You've really, uh, you've lifted the veil, it sounds like. Yeah. And people are appreciative, even appreciative. people who are descended from those who killed Indians. Right. Which half of my family is. <laughs> And uh, let's hope that it does get into schools. Certainly it should get to teachers. The name of the book is An Indigenous People's History of the United States. Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz is the author. Any last words, Roxanne? Well, um, yeah, I'll read the book. And uh, you're, uh, you can Google me and easily find uh Find me how to my email address and um, write to me and and tell me what you think of the book.
Are you appearing in any places here in New York you can tell us about? Yes. I um, Today, uh, on International Women's Day, I'll, I'll be at Blue Stockings Bookstore at 7 o'clock uh, this evening. And I'll be talking about uh, the women's movement of the 1960s that I was involved in. I did a memoir called Outlaw Woman, a memoir of the Warriors, 1960 to 1975. And a new edition of that book is out, so I'll be talking about that. And the same thing, uh, the um, uh, Unfinished Business, the Women's Liberation Movement of the 1960s at Sarah Lawrence College on um, Monday, March 9th at uh, 6.30. And on on uh, Tuesday evening at Columbia University uh, in the faculty house, uh, I'll be talking about this book at 7 o'clock. And on Thursday night at 6 at Brooklyn College, uh, the Palestinian um, students there, or the Students for Palestine at uh, Brooklyn College, invited me to come and speak about uh, settler colonialism and the, the parallels between Israel and the United States. So that's Thursday night at Brooklyn College in the Student Union. Very good. And we're... we're Give the contact information where people can find out about these talks you're giving. Well, if they're on Facebook, they can go to my Facebook page. It's open to everyone. Even if you're not a friend, you can read everything on there, and the schedule and all the details are, are on there. And, um, well, yeah, and and um, what else? Um, that would probably be the best place to go, yeah. Well, this is William Lauren Katz. And uh, my website is williamlcats.com. And it's been an absolute pleasure interviewing you, Roxanne. And I just have to say, as a fellow teacher, you have written a fascinating book. I just hope it gets not only to the college people, but to the high school kids, because I think that this book is long overdue. By the way, it's beautifully written, fully documented. And it'll knock your socks off. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Thank you for being on with me. (laughs) Thank you. And good night. Good night.